0: Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photo is provided by the Cashfly Content Delivery Network. Send your web content blazingly fast with Cashfly. And now, pay as you go. Start with 2 terabytes free by going to C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y and use the promo code TWIP. TWIP is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code TWIP at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. TWIP is brought to you by FreshBooks, the simple cloud accounting solution that's helping thousands of new entrepreneurs and small business owners save time billing and get paid faster. Sign up for free at freshbooks.com and join over 5 million users running their businesses with ease.
1: This is TWiP, episode 442. Is VR poised to change the world? Adobe launches a sleek new look for Photoshop CC and introduces the ability to customize the user interface and enter the design space mode to take full control over the screen elements and work with artboards similar to the working space used in Adobe Illustrator. The panel kicks off the conversation today by discussing these new changes and how we feel these new features could help photographers to streamline their workflow and save us time by only displaying the tools that we use regularly within Photoshop. In the second story for this week, we discuss Phase 1 acquiring the Mamia Digital Imaging Company. This is an expansion of the medium format camera company that our phase one expert and panelist this week, Jeffrey Totaro, welcomes with open arms. In discussion surrounding our third story this week, we talk about the possibility of virtual reality coming of age as a technology and visual medium and how it can be used to provide an immersive experience, raising awareness of crisis situations and the foreseen difficulties involved in filming a virtual reality movie in real time. I'm Martin Bailey, standing in for Frederick Van Johnson this week, and I'm joined by architectural photographer Jeffrey Totaro, and host of our own Twip Weddings podcast, Brian Caparici. It's Monday, December 7th, 2015, and this is Twip. This is Martin Bailey. I'm standing in for Frederick Van Johnson, our usual incredibly awesome host. Today I'm joined by Brian Caparici and Jeffrey Totaro. How are you guys? Very well, Martin. Thanks for having us on. It's great. I mean, it's actually the first time that Brian and I, it's the first time we've spoken, but I'm looking forward to our conversation. And Jeffrey, we've spoken a number of times, so uh, yeah. we, we know each other a little bit better. But
2: a little better. Yeah, good to see you again.
1: Yeah. We, uh, we've got a number of great topics to talk about today. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is Adobe has updated Photoshop and added several significant new features. Last week, Adobe rolled out another update to its Creative Cloud suite of apps, which included some significant new features for Photoshop CC to boost overall pro- productivity and save you time and a few headaches adobe is giving the photo editing software custom toolbars this means that you'll be able to add delete and rearrange what appears in that set of tools on the left side of the interface the new feature allows you to customize the layout of your workspace so that you can add just the items that are you know that you use to stop saving uh, to stop using up that valuable space now, have have either of you actually been able to take a look at this? I, I've only just got the update through, and I've had like five minutes to play with it. Have either of you taken a look? Uh,
2: I haven't. Uh, this is the first I've, I've learned of it today, uh, just seeing the show notes, actually. So I'm actually very excited to to see what it's all about. Um, I think that um, yeah, since I've been using Creative Cloud, I, I've, I actually really like it. I mean, everyone complained about the monthly cost and everything, but... Uh, the updates I've done have all been seamless. I haven't had any any issues uh, hmm. with um, with the service as Creative Cloud, or uh, yeah, I've totally been very happy with it. And so these these new features are going to be great. I think uh, like like most people, everyone has their handful of tools that they always use in Photoshop. There are very few people that exploit all of Photoshop, so it's it would be very nice just to to call down the the, the tools that you need, especially for. Uh, you might be able to see behind me. I have a dual monitor setup, so I'm not too worried about it for my day-to-day work in my office, but there are plenty of times where I'm in a hotel room trying to work on my 15 inch MacBook Pro. And it'd be great to set up a workspace that's just dedicated to, uh, to a smaller operation where I can just have just the tools and pallets that I need handy. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to giving that a shot.
1: Yeah, me too. I, I know we spoke briefly before we started recording, Brian, but yeah, you're only just taking a look right now, right?
3: Yeah, I think I probably had the same five minutes, Martin, that you had to get into. <laughs> I've been, in fact, uh, reading the show notes for the episode was the first time that I even realized that I had the update. It must have been obviously today then because Adobe uh, CC didn't, didn't automatically install it for me. So I installed it as we were chatting and have kind of poked around a little bit. I mean, obviously reading about it, it's nice to, to, to read the features, but it's even better to get in there and poke around and play with it yourself. I think one mm-hmm. of the things I, I noticed immediately was, I mean, I have a, an appreciation for user interface um, and for like, you know, making the experience of using a software really nice. Um, that's what we do actually with, with, uh, with my company. We'll talk about that later on. But I've spent a lot of time in UI meetings and UX meetings, and I can really appreciate the work that they've done. It seems that they're going more with the flat design style which is definitely more on trend with where software is today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was a much needed change. But one of the things that I like the most about it, and I haven't had a chance um, like you, Martin, to get in and actually try to make the custom toolbars, but I think that that has got to be an indication of where a lot of things are going. I think customization in software is really the future of where we're at. I mean, there's only so many features and functionality, uh, you know, additions you can kind of jam into a package. I think at this point it's now about refinement and making it easier and making it more customizable, and I think uh, that's probably the the first step in the right direction for that for Adobe.
1: Mm, mm. Yeah, I I actually I. I've taken a look. I totally agree. I think that the new look of the interface looks great. You've, mm-hmm. You know, the, the flat feel, when it first opened up, I was a little initially a little bit uh, surprised to <laughs> see a totally new opening screen and yeah. a list of recent files to open and then, or do you want a new one? Um, it looks good. And, and unlike the, the unpopular recent Lightroom import dialogue, obviously then you open a file or you go in and, and create a new one. The look is great. I think that the for me, literally, honestly, five ten minutes is all I had, so it, I couldn't fi- easily find a way to actually customize the the little the toolbar at the mm-hmm. side of the screen. Um, I'm I'm hoping that this is that the show notes are accurate and that that is mm-hmm. possible. I think that it, if it is, it's great because, like you say, Brian, you know, they, you you rarely use all of those tools. It'd be nice to slim it down a little bit, um, especially. I mean, I, I'm using a a tablet. Uh, application on the iPad called Ast- AstroPad and it would be great to get a really, I mean, just create a custom uh, interface, you know, the UI, create a custom layout just for AstroPad because then you could really n- narrow it down to the few tools that you, you really use in there, although you can use them all. Um, but I, I think that there's, it, it could, at the moment looking at it, it could be a little bit more uh, intuitive, you know, if there is a way to do that, I can't find it yet. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been using software long enough that I should be able to. Um, but I, I think that it's it's probably there. It's just a, one of those obvious things that you can't find in the first five minutes of trying to use it.
2: Well, I have to give you guys kudos for the in the in the bravery category. Uh, <laughs> I'm not one to download software when it's initially available. <laughs> so yeah. I think a- I like That's, to wait, uh, wait around and read a few reviews and get, let, let, let you guys figure out the problems. With <laughs> well,
1: on, from past experience, we could call that bravery or foolishness. Yeah. It, it, goes, <laughs> yeah. it goes both ways. I, I think that it's, it's one of those things that I usually download things. As soon as I see a, an update, I download it every so often I get bitten and I have to revert. But generally I, I just live with the, uh, with the, the bad things until it gets fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, But another cool thing about this update is that Photoshop will now also support multiple artboards in the same file. So until now, we've had to rely on layers and groups to be able to toggle on and off the multiple screens. But from this new update, we can now have those on separate artboards like you can in Illustrator. Hmm. Do you think that there's, uh, Brian, I'll I'll throw it to you first. Do you think that there's an application for that with, with Photoshop?
3: Well, I mean, for me, I I'm, I'm a wedding and portrait photographer, and so my my use in or my the time that I spend in Photoshop is not as much as it is in something like Lightroom. Um, I do spend time in Photoshop doing some graphic design, doing some basic layout stuff, but I also do tend to go to Illustrator for that kind of stuff when when I can because I want the vector um, out of it. But th- if I didn't have that feature in, in Illustrator. Uh, I don't know what I would do. So for someone that does spend a lot of time in Photoshop, um, Mm. that functionality, the ability to have two artboards side by side um, is, I think, really useful. I mean, you can use it for versions. So if you want to see two different edits side by side, if you want to see two different graphical layouts, if you're doing any graphic design side by side, um, it's a little bit nicer than having to flick on and off layers, which is what you had to do up until now. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I could see a use for it. Do I see it? as useful as it is in Illustrator, I don't know. But I also don't use Photoshop as much as, you know, some other photographers would.
1: Mm. I think that that's, that's probably the case with me too. I I use Illustrator for designing things and and actually creating illustrations, of course. And so I like having them in, having layers, not layers, um, the artboards in, in Illustrator, especially because it enables you to export them, mm-hmm. in, you know, in various ways. Um, but I'm sure that these are going to be useful in, in Photoshop as well. And, and some of the, uh, the people that really rock with Photoshop are going to probably enjoy that new feature.
3: Well, I, I, I'm almost left to wonder, and, and this is, it's just kind of coming to me as I'm, as I'm we're talking about this, mm. like it, it almost seems like there's a convergence of uses in all of this. I mean, the idea of having multiple artboards for layouts makes sense because you're having multiple versions you're sharing assets you're sharing graphical designs and all that but now if they're enabling that in photoshop are they trying to make photoshop do what people use illustrator for i mean obviously there's less of a pressure to you know to make people need to use illustrator because you buy cc and you have everything but i don't know i kind of feel like does it go against what we want to use photoshop for i mean Photoshop. For, for In my opinion anyways, and for what, how I use it, the, the core of it is um, image manipulation and retouching of an image. It's, it's moving pixels around. And so what would you need multiple artboards for? And I guess as I think about it and talk it out, I'm trying to really understand the use case for it. Um, but I, I certainly am open to, to hearing other thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Jeffrey? Can you, can you think of a, a way that that might be useful?
2: Well, um, honestly, uh, I'm not. I have never used Illustrator, so I'm actually not familiar with artboards. But just listening to what you guys are describing, I think I understand the concept of uh, perhaps like versioning or, or an idea like that. Uh, I use Photoshop ex- extensively, kind of the opposite of, of Brian, where I'm um, in uh, always moving pixels around, layering and compositing uh, various exposures together. I shoot architecture and interiors, and so that's a lot of it's a little more. Uh, I don't know if technical is the right word, but there's just a, a lot more mm-hmm. little pieces to refine yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so Photoshop's really my, my main tool. I use capture one as a raw converter, uh, in there you can do, um, sort of versioning and, and what they call variants. Uh, so a lot of times they'll have different, uh, same exact exposure, but i will create different variants for different, uh, white balances or various exposures and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'm a little bit used to that kind of workflow from capture one, but in Photoshop itself. I mean, every now and then I get a really huge layer stack, but mostly I go in, put the the one layer in, may have two or three layers, couple adjustment layers, make a few moves here and there. And then I usually flatten it back down again. Cause I, I just, I know my workflow pretty well. Um, and I don't often need to go back. And if I do, I just run the raw file again, but, uh, maybe it has something to do with working in, in a larger group, uh, with different people having input. So you could have this, this variation and that variation. Um, maybe they're thinking people will be able to actually work in tandem somehow with these on different machines at the same time, something like that maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it, it doesn't really uh, apply too much to what to what I need to do uh, just because of working on one file, just I usually flatten it down pretty pretty quickly. I don't really save too many variations and versions because uh, partly because that gets just to just be a little too troublesome. But uh, like mm-hmm. a shoot we were doing tonight, actually sort of the opposite of that, we were shooting a lighting uh, installation, uh, exterior lighting on a building and we shot... Maybe a dozen or so different variations of what the lighting uh, shows could do, but even that would be—they'd still be individual files. It wouldn't be all within one file.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's the thing for photographers. We we you know we create a file a a x number of pixels by x number of pixels file, and I think that it's it's probably unless you you really do. I mean, I can imagine people that um, take take a file and like compositing for example you might have a whole bunch of different stuff that you want to bring in and that's probably going to be easier um for myself i don't do a lot of work in photoshop on my images um but the last part of this story is something that i i do feel will for me this is probably the most exciting um and it's probably the most boring part of the story as well but uh, you know sifting through big font libraries can be time-consuming and Adobe has added the ability to favorite fonts. And so for me, I mean, I often, for example, I'll, I have a certain number of fonts that I use regularly, and it, if I want to try and find a new font for a specific use, say I'm, I'm creating the, the graphic that I use for marketing my tours and workshops, I always put some text in there. And when I'm looking for something new that suits the location, it can be a real pain to sift through the hundreds, possibly thousands and thousands of fonts that come down in that list. And so for me, being able to favorite a few, even if the, I still have to take all of the time to look through them, once I've found a font, I've, got, I've actually got an Evernote with a list of all of the different fonts that I use for various things. <laughs> I can now just favorite them. And so this for me is probably one to be one of the most time consuming new features.
2: That Did, seems like can it's you just
1: see do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's relatively fundamental, but it's mm. uh, it's good to see that in there.
3: I was gonna say, I think that's like I think we're gonna start to see um, like little things like that that make, like I said earlier, like that make the uh, the experience of using the software more fluid, more streamlined, simpler, a bit more customized. Like you're seeing in this, you know, two uh, r- relatively, you know, like not huge changes, the ability to customize the toolbar. the ability to favorite fonts but it just makes if you can shave a little bit of time off of every time you go and use those features that Mm. time compounded can be significant so um i think it's great that they're going to start to see little like that they can take some time to do little tweaks like that to make our lives easier to make our workflow perhaps a little bit more streamlined and so yeah i mean i can see that being a huge um benefit again i mean I'm, i'm left to wonder I said the idea of sort of the convergence of, uh, use cases for the different pieces of software. If they're putting more and more emphasis on typeface and, you know, those kinds of things, um, in Photoshop, again, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I use, I use like an InDesign or Illustrator for that kind of thing. But again, that would just be me and mm. my, in the way that I use the software. So I guess they have to make mm. it, um, usable for everybody. I wonder if they're going to have a similar functionality, um, as those coming out for the other suites, like if they're going to have that for Illustrator or InDesign and those kinds of things,
1: mm, it could be. I mean, I, I noticed literally my my computer's only just picked up the fact that there is an update out, and mm-hmm. there was a whole slew of updates. It wasn't mm-hmm. just Photoshop, so I right. think that they're probably this is probably more widespread. Yeah, um, nice. but it, it it sounds like this. You know, I I totally agree. I think that this is the right way for Adobe to be moving in in many ways because they are shaving those little bits of time off from our workflows is really important. None of us have got time to waste. And I I think that we can sometimes spend a lot of time doing just that while we're trying to figure out which buttons to press. So, okay, it sounds like a big thumbs up here from, from the panel. We'll move on. After this word from our sponsor, we'll talk about phase one, acquiring the assets of MAMIA.
0: If you haven't checked out Squarespace lately, you really should pop over to Squarespace.com and have a look. The templates they use are stunning and completely remove the need to do any coding or maintenance. And If you want, you can customize these templates to meet your particular aesthetic. The sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need any coding skill or any magic like that. Their intuitive tools are easy to use. Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering the site to make sure that it's secure and stable. And also, it's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world are using Squarespace. Plans start at $8 a month and you can even get a free domain if you sign up for a year. You can start your free trial today with no credit card required over at squarespace.com. Then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code TWIP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful.
1: Okay, so phase one has acquired the assets of the MAMIA Digital Imaging Company. Phase one had held a 45% stake in MAMIA since 2009 and will now take full control over the company's production of medium format camera systems, central shutters, and lenses. Phase One is now the only medium format camera company that has full internal control of all critical components in a world-class imaging system. And that comes from Niels V. Knudsen, Phase One's image professor, in a statement announcing the deal. And Makoto Honda... Was named the president of Phase One Japan, and Mamia's eighty employees are there in a factory. They'll be around to, to uh, obviously, hopefully, continuing to work for for Phase One. Um, but the the last thing uh, in this story, the so I guess this is Makoto Honda said, Phase One Japan is committed to developing new and custom designed masterpiece leaf shutter optics. In close partnership with top photographers, imaging companies, and long-term design partner Schneider, this is going to be a good one. Cruise <laughs> uh, so Schneider Cruise and and that's that came from a statement about the deal. This is this is an interesting story. Uh, we spoke recently about um, I think it was the the people that make uh, the the drone. They they bought a big chunk of a comp of a, a an imaging company and like very much like mamia so let's see jeffrey how, how mm-hmm. do you think phase what do you think phase one expects to how do you think they expect to benefit from taking full control of a company like mamia i know that's a very open question
2: uh well i, I was excited to see this topic i've been a, a phase one shooter for 10 years uh and i'm on my third uh, digital back that I that I use from them. I started with their P25 and then the P45 plus, and now I'm on the IQ260. Hmm. Uh, I use those with technical cameras. Um, I've really enjoyed the, the product; is outstanding. I tested it against everything else that was available at the time, and um, really, really impressed with the company. I'm very happy ten years later to see that they're still leading the industry, and I, I made an investment in the right company because at the time there were basically three other three companies, two companies, um, and so. I'm excited to see this Uh, as, as the article says that they they had a 45% stake uh, back in 2009. And what that meant that they basically brought on the Mamiya, uh, the 645 um, uh, camera platform is what they basically gained from that relationship. And they rebranded that camera into a phase one camera and updated it. And now recently, uh, in the last year, they've introduced a whole new medium format camera system, the XF body, which is getting tremendous reviews. It's, it's really beautifully designed, great user interface. Brian, it sounds like if you're into UI, you should check this camera out just to appreciate it. It's really mm-hmm. beautifully done. Um, so I think that, uh, when I read about this and, and, uh, and heard about it, I th- I was thinking, uh, you know, it's always easy to make analogies to Apple, but Apple at this point, you know, they control their entire their entire life start to finish. Uh, they, they design and manufacture their own chips. And that means that they can design a chip to do a certain task and they don't have to pull one off the shelf and then force it to do a task. And maybe that chip wasn't really designed to do that. So I think in this case that that uh, phase one, uh, acquiring full control of, of Mamiya and also working in close partnership with Schneider, uh, will be able to really design everything from the sensor to the lenses and, and user interface, everything to really make an even much tighter product uh, that will you know, be able to exploit every every uh, facet of the manufacturing and design process, so I really look forward to it and they to see look forward to see what they what they do and on the software side, they just released last week uh uh capture one uh version nine, hmm. which uh, I've been excited to upgrade to, but like I said' <laughs> let some other people do it first <laughs> um it does have some some nice new features, but um yeah they've really been a leader in in raw uh processing software. And, uh, yeah, plenty of people just like to stick within Lightroom and I get that it's sort of a nice and uh, easy environment, but for, um, people who maybe need a little more horsepower, capture one is, is tremendous. Or if you shoot tethered, uh, capture one's tremendous and I'm sure they'll continue to, to make that even better. So, uh, I, and then, and you look at the competition a little bit like, like a, a company like Hasselblad, they just, um, I think even just last week or two weeks ago, they, they took a huge knife and cut a big chunk off their prices which is seems to me, and again, I don't know all the details of it, but it seems a little desperate to me. Uh, and also, uh, I, you know, if I were a, a consumer and had purchased uh, one of their cameras at, at the full price or the higher price, and then two weeks later, they cut it, and a week later, they cut it again, I'm like, uh, I don't know about this. That doesn't make me feel so good. Mm-hmm. So um, I've never felt that way in, with phase one. And I'm not shilling for phase one. It's just a product I really like and use. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they've always kept their customers in a... Um, you know, you're, you're 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 sort of in the family, as they like to say. And there's always a good trade-in path if you want to upgrade your back and things like that. So uh, I think it's just going to make them an even stronger player in the market. And uh, look forward to seeing seeing what else they do. Mm,
1: yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, Mamia, uh, with, with me living in Japan here, obviously Mamia is a is a Japanese company, and I'm I'm um, I'm always really initially disappointed to see, from my perspective, outside or overseas companies. Come in and, and buy big chunks of of companies here, but at the get at the same time, I, I I understand that they you know Mamia has a, a great value proposition as well. They they make great gear. I mean, I, I've seen Mamia cameras out in the field, and people tend to be you know they they're, they're built really really well. The production standards are very high. So I agree. I mean, it, bringing in a, that sort of quality into an already Quality-based company is probably got to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Ryan, do you think that they have any other expectations from from the merger, or, or you know, the taking full control of Mamia?
3: Well, you know, for, um, being a wedding and portrait shooter myself, I've always been in the the DSLR space, and uh, more recently, I'm going in the opposite direction, and, and I've been photographing with Fuji uh, mirrorless cameras for about two years now. So my uh, my knowledge base in in that space um, certainly isn't as um, as as it's not as deep as your your guys uh, unfortunately, but I think one of the, the things that um that I kind of realize in a lot of the companies that go out and do these these big buyouts like this is not only are you buying IP and assets such as the technology and patents and you know various things like that and equipment, but you're also buying people and you're buying the mm-hmm. people that and and the brains behind the company. And so I think there's there's got to be some level of Consideration for that in this um, in this buyout. Um, obviously, there's some some people with some uh, you know their heads in the right direction that are very forward thinking, and that obviously Phase One um, sees an interest in for wh- where they want to go next. And I think that's got to be an indication that they're not going anywhere. They're looking to to move forward, to grow, to get bigger, to to keep going forward. And so I think uh, I think that's that's got something to say. I mean, obviously, if you can if you're in the position to buy out a company like that. I think that it only shows that that you're you're in a strong position and you're looking to to get stronger and i think that that Mm. can only be a good thing
1: yeah yeah and it looks from this story it looks as though there are only 80 people in mamia in japan anyway yeah i was surprised by that yeah i mean i would have thought that that was a larger number and this is just pure conjecture but i maybe mamia have been getting smaller as a company um, due to digital and so if this helps MAMIA to revive their company as well then that's got to be a good thing um, and, and I hope that those 80 people are you know some mergers end up with okay thank you goodbye um, and I hope that doesn't happen because you know from from my experience a lot of these these Japanese companies however small have a lot of talent like you say Brian you know it's the people that is is often the the strong point of a company like this so Hopefully those people have have still got a secure job and it works out good for for all parties. Anything else to add on that? Okay. So after another quick break, is virtual reality ready for its
0: close-up? This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, We use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBooks offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or, you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients, it's easy, you can do it in seconds, and expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can bi- whip up business reports, you can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up, so with a couple of clicks you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant So that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com/twip, enter the code this week in photo or twip in the How did you hear about us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com/twip and enter twip in the How did you hear about us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of this week in photo.
1: So is virtual reality ready for its close up? When Facebook spent $2 billion to buy virtual reality headset maker Oculus VR in 2014, the purchase seemed a little kooky. Google's cheeky response a year later, a cardboard VR viewer called Cardboard that sells for $20 suggested that something was up, but it wasn't clear what. There is anecdotal evidence that in, in fact, virtual reality is closer than ever to becoming something. The New York Times recently conducted an impressive experiment by filming short documentaries in virtual reality and distributing Google viewers to more than a million subscribers. A stub of Nokia, the part that remained independent from Microsoft, introduced a $60,000 professional VR camera a uh, professional quality VR camera, the Ozo, and it's targeted at Hollywood. So Nokia figures it will play, pay for the latest technology if it means attracting and retaining audiences. So this this is an an interesting story. Um, Brian, have you? What's your initial reaction to this? Do, do, I mean, are you do you are you do you have anything to do with VR or?
3: Well, well, what, what, when I first read it i had to sort of dig a little bit because youtube has had their youtube 360 thing for a while and if i'm not mistaken at least in the, my quick research and in, in reviewing all this it's the kind of the same thing correct
1: yeah yeah i, I think the thing is is it's it's the rather than just looking at it on a screen and being able to move around it's it's having it right in front of your face like it like those vr headsets
3: right right um i mean i think it's interesting um I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about whether it's going to catch or not. I mean, I think the technology, I think, is super interesting. I've watched a lot of really interesting um, things through YouTube 360. Um, Mythbusters has one where you're actually out there swimming in the coral reef with a bunch of sharks. And you can just move <laughs> your phone around as if you're there and looking at things and all that. And I think it's really fascinating to be able to, to um, you know, watch a video to, to that level of control. I think it kind of adds another element, another dimension to watching um, some kind of film like that, um, I saw another one where it was one of the companies, the first company ever to announce a product through, you know, that kind of virtual reality three hundred and sixty kind of view, and it was a company where like you you were kind of in their their lobby. Uh, of their, of their business and, and the CEO or whatever would walk out and was like, welcome and talking to the camera. But while he's doing that, like you could kind of look around and look at the desk and the receptionist and there's a whole bunch of little Easter eggs hidden. So like you could like, someone was like playing something off in the corner and all that. I, I just think, I think the technology has some really, really interesting use cases. Do I see the virtual reality side setting in at any point? I mean, uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, 3d, uh, had a pretty good go i mean it's still going pretty well but i don't think it took off as well as everyone had expected it would take off either so i think this is just another attempt at seeing what's going to stick and what's not going to stick and i think uh, the mm. technology's there i think it's now in the hands of the creatives that use it to see what what can we do with it
1: yeah i you know i saw a i think it was a ted talk that i i watched a few weeks ago um just coincidentally about i think it was how um, a person was using VR to relay or to to increase the awareness of crisis situations they this it was I, I should look this up I, in fact I'll look it up and put it in the show notes so that people can check it out but um the there was there was a woman that had taken um you know created VR footage from things like a I think it was a young girl in Syria who was just talking, you know, very innocent, and just this young girl talking. She starts off singing or humming a song, and then a bomb goes off next to her. You know, it's like this this innocent situation where it's it's like a warm afternoon, people are, are drinking in ca- drinking coffees in cafes or whatever, and, and then all of a sudden a bomb goes off, and they were using this footage to raise awareness. I mean,
3: hmm.
1: we we get we get all and and you know that what happened for example in France recently is atrocious and and we don't you know we don't i'm not in any way trying to belittle that but we we tend to really talk a lot about things that happen on our own soil but in Syria and various countries around the world that, that sort of stuff happening is happening daily and i think that the the point of this TED talk was that VR if you watch, a, watch something two-dimensional on a video, you, you remember a certain amount or it affects you only a certain amount. But if you watch an experience like that, you know, a, a, you're talking to a little girl and a bomb goes off, then it, it affects us differently because we're totally enshrouded in that environment. You know, we have these glasses on and as we move, it's as though we are actually in that environment and there's there's invest not uh, there's research being done to show that that really helps us to get to get, you know to build a relationship or or to actually appreciate the horror of that sort of situation and and it could be of course used in a lot of different ways. I think that there there was also a a scene where there were people standing in a queue and someone had a diabetes attack and fell over, you know they they lost consciousness. And then it sort of shows you how people would react to that. And it, I think that there's a lot of, you know, we, we talk in, even in this, um, in this article about Hollywood, sure. We, we need dollars to, to sort of invest on and, and, and improve this sort of technology, but VR is not that new. It's, it's just, you know, I remember 15, 15, 20 years ago, people started to talk about this, um. But I think to take it to the next level, we probably would need someone like Hollywood to get involved and, and invest all of the big dollars that, that, come, that tend to come from there. But I think that the, the work that people like the ones that, you know, like I say, I'll, I'll figure out who this was and I'll put a link to the TED Talk in the show notes. Um, but I think that using technology in that kind of way to raise awareness about crisis situations around the world is probably another very noble um, aspect of this sort of story. So, Jeffrey, uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, you, you blow my mind a little bit. I was, I was, I hadn't considered that sort of use for for VR in terms of actually like giving people a more sympathetic um, reaction to something by by immersing them in an experience. I think that mm. that that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I was thinking of it more on the sort of entertainment uh, mm-hmm. uh, playing that's, field. That's- yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of video games and um, and you know, movies, that kind of things. Uh, um, a friend of mine went recently. They they had a, a demo of this uh, in Philadelphia on South Street, uh, in like a, a, a truck or a trailer. You could go into and, and experience it. And he said it was unbelievable. Like you can go under the ocean. You know, all, all kinds of different different experiences that they ride you through in their demo. And so, uh, to me, it's it, it seems great and interesting. But also, it seems like if you're going to use it. Uh, or purchase it or however however people interact with it, it seems like something you really need to dedicate time to. It's like, okay, here I'm going to mm-hmm. put these things on, I'm gonna sit down or go into a space and and use this thing for a while and so it just seems like there's a certain um, a certain commitment you have to make to to wanting to use it or putting a, a chunk of time aside to get the full experience out of it. But then mm-hmm. I'm thinking more about it, and when you were talking about the you know the, the other potential uses, I'm thinking that there's probably uh many applications that could be used in terms of training uh, for a yeah. variety of things, uh, just to be able to, to experience different, different ways of, of doing any, any sort of task or learning any kind of skill, uh, where that could be, that could be really helpful because obviously, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of us learn different, whatever, Photoshop techniques or things like that are very 2d that work well on YouTube. But if there's some sort of more three-dimensional task, you're trying to, maybe, maybe it's a sport, maybe it's a something else that's definitely a more three-dimensional task and this virtual reality could be really interesting and maybe it ends up being not something you own but maybe you go to a place uh maybe it's kind of like flight training almost you know where the you know big flight simulators that's basically vr uh but maybe there's other other tasks that can be done and you can go to some training center and learn how to do a variety of different things
0: mm-hmm. so
2: who knows mm-hmm. so i think the, the technology is probably endless in what you can do with it um uh, on probably good and bad <laughs> so, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, did did either of you take a look at the OZO, the the Nokia uh, virtual reality camera that that's linked there? No,
3: I no, didn't. Let me, didn't. Quickly let me check it out. I I think just uh, while we're waiting on that, I I just I had a an interesting sort of thought as Jeffrey was talking, and and I'm thinking about like the way that we uh, consume media, and I guess I guess there's different like use cases, right? I mean, the idea of using it, I, I love both, uh, Martin, what you're talking about with the sort of awareness, the increasing empathy, and almost creating an immersion into an experience in order to increase that. I think that's a wonderful use for it. I think uh, the training sort of use case is really interesting as well. But I'm just, I'm left to wonder, like, in the sort of Hollywood scene, in, in the entertainment space, um, we're living now as a society, and this isn't something that we're, we're trying to fight. This is what the reality is, is like, we're in the, the second screen society. I mean, we're into the second screen, third screen, fourth screen society where no one ever just sits and watches a movie. You sit and watch a movie and you're on your phone and you have your Apple watch on your wrist and you've got the laptop open beside you. Like that's what mm-hmm. we're not really in a singular focused world of consumption anymore. That's not, I, I mean, I can't think of anyone that I know that like consumes media, like for an extended period of time in, in a very like laser visioned kind of way. And I mean, obviously um, this idea of virtual reality is like literally laser visioned because you've literally got blockers like, on, on all sides of you. So it's, it's it's forcing you into an immersion, which I actually think is probably a good thing because I think people can stand to have less distraction in their life. But mm-hmm. um, you know, that being said, I'm, I'm curious to see how consumers will catch on to it um, from an entertainment perspective.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's very good points from both of you. Um, Yeah. I was looking at the camera and Mm. the first thing as a photographer, the first thing that came to my mind, it's like a ball with cameras all over it. And the first thing that came to my mind was how do you get the crew out of the way? (laughs) You know, like if literally if Hollywood's going to use this, then we've all seen documentaries of, you know, the making of. And there's this whole crew of people. there's the director sitting on his folding chair, and there's people everywhere behind the the action you know the 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 scene is here and we' they're filming that way and so there's a whole crew and everything just to make that scene happen. so if you're actually going to from a photographer's perspective or a videographer's perspective, if you're going to make videos of virtual reality and literally have the everything three hundred and sixty degrees. How do you get the crew out of the way? How do you actually photograph that?
2: Excellent question. Yeah,
3: it's a, everybody scatter. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it's it's a totally different uh, mindset for for um, how we create imagery and how we create media. I mean, it's like right now, it's very much like there's a wall, right? There's what's in front of the camera and what's behind yeah. the camera, and that's how we're used to making images. It's just how we've always we've always done it. But obviously, this is a completely new way of doing it. As far as I understand, because I've seen some, um like, I know it's like totally not even the same thing, but some real estate photographers that do the 3D tours and all that, there's always like the rotating, you know, at the bottom, and that, you've always kind of got the pivot point. I'm assuming it's got to be somewhat similar to that, because there has to be some stop point. I'm assuming you can't go directly down to look right below the camera. Otherwise, how is the camera there? If you can look directly up and directly down, what's supporting the camera right so there's mm-hmm. got to be there's got to be some some i i don't know i maybe maybe that's not the case maybe it's like being hung by a string or something i'm not sure it'd be interesting to see a behind the scenes of it but i definitely think it's going to bring some interesting um dynamic to even something like lighting like think about in the movies how would you light something if you can let viewers see 360 degrees
1: Right. I mean, holy you turn, cow! You look behind you, and all of the lights are there. Yeah, that's is, what I mean. Like yeah.
3: in, in the movies, like the lights are are crazy. The cranes, like everything, the equipment they use. But that's hmm. because it's typically filmed with a with a two sided perspective, um, behind yeah. the camera, in front of the camera. It'd be interesting to see how how this is taken and and made, uh, and, and sort of used in, in the purpose it was made to be used.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You know, I've, I've not looked into any of that and I, you know, maybe I, I should have done a few searches, but if any of the listeners have have got experience with filming this sort of thing, maybe they could drop us a line and let us know. We, we could <laughs> maybe even talk about it on a future show. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's time for some Q and A. This week's question comes from Tamara. I hear a lot of photographers who talk about using back button focus can you explain what that is and what the advantages of are, you, of, are of using it? So um, do either of you use back button focus?
2: I do not, no.
1: No? Jeffrey? I, uh, I'm not I sure. Don't,
2: I don't. Uh, most of my cameras that I use are, are manual focus, uh, which sounds really silly, but that's the, the, the fact of the matter. Um but from what I understand about the the back button focus, it's basically and it's a great idea. It's a, it's a way to remove the focus function from the shutter button, hmm. so that if you're if you're thinking maybe maybe you have an off center composition uh, and you're, you're shooting a person and you want to keep the person off center. Um, Your camera continually wants to refocus maybe on the center or wherever your last focus point was, but uh, basically you can tell the camera, okay, I'm going to push the button on the back of the camera. I'm going to focus, and now I'm focused, and I can keep changing my composition every time I hit the shutter button, the camera's not going to try and refocus. So it's just a nice way to isolate uh, the two functions, uh, separate them from each other. So that you can focus when you want to and then you can keep shooting without the autofocus sort of getting in the way. We've all been there mm-hmm. where autofocus camera keeps looking around for something or you you had the, the the AF um, spot on the right and then you want it on the left but you forgot to move it or whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. But I think it's uh, uh for people shooting uh, portraits or action or anything that, that where uh, autofocus is a real asset that it's probably worthwhile getting to know this function on your camera. It seems like a lot more cameras have it.
1: Mm. So. Yeah, I mean that's I I use back button focus all the time, and and that's that's a great summarization of you know of of the benefits and and how it works, Geoffrey. So, um, just to uh, expand on the the benefits a little bit. I, well, actually, the, when you um something I also should probably mention is that like you like Geoffrey said at the end, then um when you when you want to set your camera up to only use back button focus. It's generally just a case of going into the custom functions uh, on a, on Canon cameras. You you go into the to the custom function screen, and and you just you basically tell the camera that you do you no longer want the shutter button to initiate the focusing. Um, if it activates focusing, all of that stuff that Jeffrey started just said starts to come in, and you've got to keep if you want to recompose, you've got to keep your finger half pressed on the shutter button, and that kind of um makes it more difficult to work in some situations the next thing that you do though i mean normally the back button the back focus button af af on and it's got various ways that it says it there's a button on the back of the camera um, sometimes there isn't a button and you have to use something like the flash exposure uh, lock button to do this or sometimes you can use both depending on you know on the ergonomics of the camera um, but yeah, the, the, there's two parts to the settings. Um, one is to stop the shutter button from focusing. The second is to just ensure that the right button on the back of the camera is going to activate the focus mechanism. And but to expand a little bit on the on the benefits, I really like using the back focus button because it allows me to access all three focus modes without changing a setting on the camera. And by that, what I mean is if I press the button on the back of the camera with my thumb, then the camera auto-focuses and I, I use autofocus just like the camera's set up. Now, if I set my camera to use continuous focus or uh, AI servo, which, which is the Canon term for continuous focus, then that means if I want to track with a, with a, a subject, say I'm shooting wildlife or sports, while I want to track with the subject, I just keep my finger on the back focus button, and that puts me in auto fo- in continuous focus or AI servo mode. But if I only if I want one shot, rather than changing the camera to one shot or single single shot mode, I put my finger on the button, get focus, and then take my finger off the button. And so that means I've got like the equivalent of one shot at the same time. I don't have to change a setting. And then the third setting that I can go to without changing the setting is manual focus. Just don't push, touch the button at all. And most lenses you can then manually focus. So for me, it's having the ability to quickly shift between the three major focusing modes, continuous, one shot and manual focus. And so I, I started using the back focus button many years ago. And one thing that I, I will add a little bit of advice on if tomorrow is gonna to give this a try don't do it at the, when you're about to go off on an important shoot. <laughs> I had one guy. I was talking about this on a workshop a few years ago, and I had one guy who the next day was we were in like minus thirty, and he was saying my autofocus has frozen. You know, it's a, just a, a coincidence that you're in you're in a situation that you're not normally in. Um, his autofocus wasn't working, and he had, he assumed that the lens had frozen up, um, or something in the camera had frozen up. But what had happened is he'd put his camera into back focus button the neck the day before and forgotten that, that that the shutter button was no longer going to work mm-hmm. um so don't do it in at the start of an important shoot um and also when you do start to use the back focus button you will forget to focus a few times until you really get used to it it needs to become like total muscle memory you know when you want to focus you hit the back button I, I don't think about focusing with the front button anymore because I've been using the back button for like 10 years. Do it when you have time to practice. What I did was I I just went to the zoo. Um, you know, some people don't like shooting animals, photographing animals in the zoo. It's up to you what you use. You can just go outside and use passing cars. Um, it might be dangerous in some countries, but um, <laughs> just, you know, kids running on a lawn. But do it and uh, change it and practice um, and keep practicing until it becomes second nature. Or you will probably get frustrated. And the final thing that I wanted to add on that is that after that first day in the zoo, I, I hated back focus, but I didn't hate it enough to want to go back to the front focus button. It, it, I could see and feel the benefits enough that I, I was at a point where I couldn't, I could no longer go back. So, you know, give it a little bit of time, expect to struggle with it, you will forget to focus every so often, and then you'll kick yourself. And but that, those those kicks that we give ourselves as photographers generally help to to hammer in the uh, the muscle memory that we need to develop to do things like that. That's that's basically it. Take a look at your your manual tomorrow. Find out how to disable focusing from the shutter button, and if needed, just how to enable the back button. And um, and if you if you want any other help on this, you can you can get in touch with me. Go to my website. Um, we'll give you the links at the end of the show. Um, and there's a contact button up there. And just drop me a line and I'll, I'll give you some help if you need that. So anything to add on that, guys?
2: No, I think you, you nailed it. Yep. <laughs> <Spot> <laughs> <on>.
1: <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So if you have your own question that you'd like to ask, you know, then a future panel will answer this. Visit thisweekinphoto.com and click on the submit a question link to send us a question or leave us a voice message. After this break, we'll share our picks of
0: the week. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online training platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, just visit lynda.com twip. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash T-W-I-P. Now, Lynda.com is for problem solvers, creative people, or just people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel or learn negotiation tactics or build a website or even boost your Photoshop skills. Just go to Lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Lynda.com offers a ton of courses on Lightroom, Photoshop, and the Adobe Creative Cloud, and many on just getting inspired or re-inspired about your photography. With a Lynda.com membership you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching and you can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own schedule. And courses are structured so that you can watch them from start to finish or you can consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can even download tutorials and watch them on the go from your iOS or Android device. Your Lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics all for one flat rate. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby or just want to learn something new, visit lynda.com slash twip and sign up for your free 10 day trial. That's l y n d a.com slash twip.
1: Okay, let's jump into our picks of the week segment. Remember, you can pick anything as long as it's photography related. So Brian, do you have a pick of the week for us?
3: I do, yes. So my pick of the week is a app uh, for the computer um, called JPEG Mini Pro. Uh, have you guys used or seen JPEG Mini Pro? No,
1: I've heard of it, but I haven't used it. Oh, no, what it is, is it? so
3: it's phenomenal. So basically, it's it's an app that you just it lives on your computer, and uh, there's a Lightroom pl- plugin for it, so you can use it in Lightroom as well, or it's just a standalone app if you don't want to use the plugin. And basically, it takes like it it has a uh, patented process for resizing images jpegs um and it it gets them they say it usually gets them on average eight times smaller Uh, my experience is more like five to six times smaller um but it gets the file size down without degrading the quality so it is phenomenal for getting images onto the web getting images into galleries getting images up and ready for social media uh takes what could be a four or five megabyte image it gets it down to like You know 200 kilobytes or maybe not that small 600 kilobytes Mm. um but the quality is still great like i've actually gone through a resizing process and a whole series of tests in doing my typical process and resizing through photoshop um, comparing it to resizing through lightroom and then comparing it to resizing with jpeg mini pro and i can't touch i can't get close to the file size that i can get in jpeg mini pro and i can't see a difference in quality wow so it's phenomenal
2: can you optimize? Can you say I want to optimize this for specifically for the web, or or if you have some other use for? Yeah, like you basically uh, you can basically just specify whatever you want the dimensions
3: to be, like the 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 long edge of it. So you mm. specify that, and then it it makes its algorithm work. It's sort of this just patented algorithm. It's like it's magic cool. for photographers. It's it's really cool. It's a very cool app. It's a little expensive, um, but uh, you know you, re- you really can't put a price on if you're if you're a photographer that has a lot of images on the web and you do a lot of emailing of images or things like that, you can't put a price on speed. Because if you have uh, you know, clients or other photographers or whatever that come to your website, if the, the website is slow to load or the, if your gallery is slow to load, um, people will mm-hmm. click away because we're in that sort of like sure. now culture. So it's definitely worth the money
2: that you spend on it if you use a lot of uh, images online. Will it, will it also, can you tell it to convert color space at the same time or not? Like if you if you have TIFs and know. Adobe RGB and then you no. want to end up with JPEG, oh, okay, no, so it's just JPEG. So it just takes a JPEG
1: cool, in and,
3: and outputs the JPEG out.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Cool.
1: yeah, that's yeah, pretty cool. That. I'm, I'm definitely. I've just opened the link. I'm going to go and give that a look. Um, you know, I I always I output my files from Lightroom at 92 because mm-hmm. someone did a a lot of years ago, and I'd never have gone back and found out who did this, but someone did some investigation and found that. 92 was like the magic border that hmm. if you you could basically half the file size, not eight, you know, as, as, as aggressive as JPEG Mini Pro Set is claiming, um, but it basically halves the file size, and there is absolutely no way that you can tell any difference. But the reality is, is that depending on the content of the photo, you can often be more aggressive and still not be able to tell. Yeah, and I've got some very big, um, nineteen. 120 pixels wide photos that are on the splash page of my website and I had to go in and literally be as aggressive as possible and just keep checking them to see if I could Mm -hmm. visually tell any difference and it sounds like jpeg mini pro is doing that for us it's it's going through and analyzing and seeing how far Mm -hmm. it can push the the um the compression without actually being able to see any difference so yeah that's got a bit Sorry, Brian.
3: No, was, the interesting thing is, so I do the same thing. I actually export out of Lightroom at 90. Um, and I'll take my export out of Lightroom at 90 and take that JPEG and put it into JPEG Mini Pro. And those two side by side, I still can't see the difference. And yet I'm still getting yeah. the size down four, five or six times smaller than, than what it was coming out of Lightroom. It's, it's remarkable. I don't know how they do it or what they do, but it hmm. is wonderful and it works really, really well.
1: Great. Wow, I've got a little job on my hand this afternoon, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to just try and see if I can run it on. I might have to use a backup and re-upload it, but I've got like three gigabytes of photos that are sitting on my website from like 10 years of podcasts. Yeah. So I, uh, I, if I go through and optimize all of those, that could save a lot of bandwidth. And like you said, Brian, it, you know, it's important to make sure that people don't get, you because know, you have to, I spend a lot of time trying to optimize my website mm-hmm. from caching and things like that. But even any cache, the person, the, the viewer still got to download that image to them um, as fast as it can be. Mm-hmm. It's still, there's still a lot of limitations. So this sounds great. Yeah. Great pick.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Great. I'll give that a try too.
1: Yeah. So Jeffrey, do you have a pick for us?
2: I do. I have one. Um, it's something I've, I've yet to actually own. Uh, I did order it, uh, today and something I've had my eye on for a long time. Um, I, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Arca Swiss tripod heads. I have um, one of their heads that I currently use on my main uh, medium format system is the Arca Swiss cube, which is a little bit of a work of art in itself. It's just a a cube of lots of uh, aluminum engineering. It has great self-arresting drives. This head is great for, you know, X axis, Y axis, getting everything nice and parallel and square and everything. And Arca Swiss is also known for a long time for their great ball heads, which uh, a lot of landscape photographers use and, um, people who don't need things to be quite so rectilinear. Uh, so what they've come up with is sort of a hybrid of these two. So they, they took all the advantages of a ball head and all the advantages of a, a, a geared uh, head nice. and 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 put it into this thing called a D4. And it comes in a few different versions. One's geared, one's not geared. And it comes in three different clamp styles. Uh, but basically, uh, for me, I like it because I, I'll still keep the cube on my primary uh, big heavy tripod. Uh, but I always have a secondary tripod for either a smaller camera or, or setting up a second shot. Um, but I've always had a ball head on that tripod because sometimes I need that sort of looking up shot that I still need to be on a tripod and it's too hard to get an X, Y axis, uh, tripod head, um, to do what I want. It's easier to use a ball head. But when I do need the camera to be nice and square, the ball head's really a pain in the neck. So this, this head <laughs> is, uh, is, is going to be, um, a dream in that sense, cause it'll, it'll, it'll serve both functions. So you can lock and unlock it, uh, and and just be able to use the geared functions. And they're nice geared functions because they're the self arresting drives. You mm. you don't have to unlock the knob and then move it and relock the knob. You just turn it and then it turns and it stays there. Oh um, wow! So it's um, but you're paying for all that technology, uh, and and precision. Um, the head is depending on how it's configured and which version. It's somewhere between. Um, I think 750 might be the lowest one, which is the ungeared one. The geared one's around 11 or 1,200 bucks. So That's really it's nice. Yeah, it's not inexpensive for a tripod head. But I've, I learned a long time ago that the, the tripod. Again, I'm always on a tripod. Is really a, a critical piece of equipment. So um, uh, I'll continue to use the, the cube, which is a, a great head. But I'm really looking forward to this D4 because uh, I also recently bought the uh, Sony A7R 2 as my secondary camera. And I just feel like I'm going to be using that even more uh, than I use because before I used to use the Canon 5D Mark II, nothing wrong with that camera. It's a great camera, but the difference in file size between my phase one, 60 megapixel and the, the 5D at, what was that? 22, 24 or something like that. My two I, was I,
1: 21, I think.
2: 20, okay. Um, it's just too big a difference. like I was not using the Canon as often because I felt like the file size difference uh, from my client's perspective was like, oh, this one's a good file and this one's a less good file. So with the Sony, there'll be more similar quality. So I feel like I can sort of interchange the two cameras and use the more appropriate camera for whatever I'm doing. So anyway, um, it's it's a great head. I put a link in the show notes. It's actually a link to B&H. Um, Arca Swiss doesn't have uh, really great um, web descriptions. I did a quick search and everything that comes up are just <laughs> websites where they sell it. So I, I just put the B and H link, but you can. There's all kinds of reviews and stuff if anybody's interested in, in learning more about it. Um.
1: This is, looks great. I mean, that mm-hmm. Swiss make really good quality products. They've been around for like ever. So yeah. I, uh, I, I'd love to give this a try myself as well. Um, it is a good price, but you know, you, a lot as with a lot of things, you get what you pay for. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So on the, I'm looking at the the B and H page. It says leverage weight capacity 75 pounds. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the amount of <laughs> weight that it can support?
2: I don't know what that, that, what that uh, specification really leverage weight. Um, I'm not, maybe that's something to do mm. with force on it or something. I'm yeah. not really sure. Um, wow. it, it will. They they say uh, in some of the reviews I've seen of it that it'll easily support a, a medium format camera system and probably, you know, which is actually reasonably heavy. Um, if, um, but I, it, it's extremely solid. And the, the Arca Swiss Cube that I use, I've had for eight or nine years. That thing will support you know anything. Um, wow! Wow! Super it, strong. It does.
1: It does say here load capacity seventy five pounds. If I mean yeah, so so it would it would it would obviously support all of your your big medium format gear as well. So oh yeah,
2: that's way less yeah. than seventy five pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow! And, beautiful um, head. The other nice thing about it that that uh, may not be obvious is that um, when you look at it, it doesn't have these long levers and, and things sticking off of it like a typical pan tilt head. So it's um you know the the old uh, Gitzo heads um, that I used to use on the the film cameras had had really long handles on them which were great for leverage and trying to move a big camera around um, but you're I was always banging into them you mm-hmm. know so and and that's that's the most annoying thing when you're you know five exposures into a twelve exposure film shot you're like oh I'm just banged into the camera <laughs> yeah. so that's it, one you of never them.
1: know if you've moved it do you.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you like start over again. So that was one big appealing factor of the cube uh, as well. It it has no knobs, which has little um, or no long handles, has little knobs. And this D4 has that's very similar, very compact. The whole thing, depending on the size of your camera, could easily reside completely under the camera. So there's nothing really sticking out uh, to bang into or or have anybody uh, hit. So really well designed, worth a look. Good stuff.
1: Yeah, looks great. Mm-hmm. So great picks, guys! Thank you. Um, I'm going to pick uh, an iPhone app called Mission Pick, and this is basically a. We talked a little a little bit a few weeks ago when I was on Twip about the uh, what was it? Now now do this, I think it was, and and that's that's great, you know. But it's kind of another similar thing. It's photography assignments, and the cool thing about this is the guys that have created the app are actually sending a free print to the winner of each daily assignment and you know so i just think that that's so generous of them they you know the, as from what i can tell they're, they're not making not making money with the app at the moment but you know they they seem like generous guys they they've got an obvious passion for for assignments and photography and so uh, i just thought that I, i'd make this my pick today uh, i'll put a, a link to the app in in uh, the app store or in iTunes, uh, but uh, it's basically mission colon pick, and and that's the name. So give, check it out; it's a, it's a great little app.
2: Gets really good reviews.
1: Yeah, yeah. People really tend to seem to be to be liking it, so wow. it's it's got to be worth a try.
2: It almost
3: seems like it's it's like social combined with like it's like a gamification of social, which is which really seems interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's so really. They've cool. They've got a great edge on it. Yeah, very cool. Very untrend too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, nice stuff. So give that a try if, if, you, if you'd like to. And I, uh, I think that just about takes us to the end of the show. So before we sign off, what have you guys got planned in the coming months, Brian?
3: Well, um, for those listeners that maybe know me from the wedding and portrait space, um, about a month ago, as of the time of this recording, uh, we launched our software for photographers, which uh, we've been working on for two years. It's called Sprout Studio. And basically, it's uh, the photography industry's first all-in-one system. So it does online galleries and studio management and invoicing and questionnaires and album proofing and everything you need to do to run a successful wedding and portrait photography business. uh, It does under one roof. So we launched that about a month ago, and we're just head down and, and continual development on that. And like I was saying earlier at the beginning of the show, when I said I've been living in UI and UX world for a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. gosh, I've talked about every pixel on every single button in that app. <laughs> and so we really thought it out. So it's something I've come to grow and love and appreciate. Um, but in, in doing that, one of the things that I'm, uh, super passionate about and very much living in the space of is this process of, um, educating photographers and teaching photographers and helping photographers move away from this social stigma of busy, we, we, all, we all live in this space and it just seems that way as a society today where we glorify busy and we wear the idea of being busy as a badge of honor. And I think that that's such a bad way to live your life and also a bad way to run your business because I don't think anyone really got into photography to say, gosh, I just want to be overworked, overwhelmed and burnt out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so but yet so, so many photographers I talk to and I talk to hundreds and hundreds of photographers all the time. They're always saying that that's how they feel in their business, and that's just such a shame because too many photographers go out of business because they can't make a go at it, and I want to help them do that. So I'm kind of in this process of starting what I call a movement, Um, and it's called the Redefined Busy Movement, and it's uh, a free educational series to help photographers get away from that and to gain more balance in their life. So um, if anyone's interested in joining me on that, it's just a series over on our blog, SproutingPhotographer.com. Or if you visit RedefineBusy.com, you'll get redirected over to that as well.
2: Sounds wow. great.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I see that, Yeah, you know, looking at the site, you, you've you got it with the, uh, you know, the there's, there's a little bit of, you might take this the wrong way, but it seems a, very Apple-esque. It's, it's, it's uh, very minimalist
3: you know, and very, very exactly, benefit very, driven. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Great yeah, design. Great. Great. great design. Awesome.
2: Thank you. So, yeah, yeah look it looks great. It. Yeah. I've been looking for, I use, um, uh, invoicing software I've been using for a long time yep. and, um, I'd always shied away from like a QuickBooks thing cause it wasn't yeah. photo centric right. enough, yeah. you know, it just seemed too generic. So I'll definitely take, take a, take a close look at this and cool. see, awesome. uh, see how that would fit. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Great.
1: Good stuff. So congratulations on the launch and everything as well, Brian. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've been busy for the last (laughs) few years.
3: Yeah, it's, it's (laughs) been fun and it's been a whole, whole new set of experiences, but uh, you know, it's, it, in the process it's really made me appreciate these companies that we get on the podcast and talk about like Adobe or JPEG mini or any of these Apple, any of these companies that do big things for our industry. It has given me a whole new appreciation for what they go through. I mean, um, our team at Spro is only 14 of us, and yet, I mean, that's been a, a job in and of itself just managing the HR side of things, let alone expectations and opinions and creative control over things. I couldn't imagine a company like Adobe or Apple and all that and the decisions that they have to go through. Um, it's really given mm. me a whole new, a whole new insight into that world on a, on a much smaller scale, but uh, and it gives me a lot of appreciation for what they do for us.
1: Mm yeah you know we often give companies like like Adobe and Apple a hard time when they make the wrong decision, but when you consider the number like you yeah. say the number of decisions and the amount of stuff they have oh, to churn man. through, yeah they do a good job yeah <laughs> so Jeffrey, what are you up to?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh I, I do a yearly uh architectural photography workshop in um down in sunny palm Beach Florida um every yes February, <laughs> so come <laughs> down to Florida in February. Um, and it's, it's a fun workshop. I've been doing it since 2008. Uh, it's a nice, uh, very intensive. It's a five day workshop. Uh, and we spend about half of each day out shooting and half a day in a classroom. And we, um, go over everything soup to nuts in terms of camera systems, lighting, composition, um, location management, uh, even, even some of the business side of things. And, uh, it's run through the Palm beach, uh, photographic center, which is, um, located at the public library there in, in West Palm beach. And they do a really nice job. They host tons of different workshops there and they do a big event every year called photo fusion, uh, which is a, a big, I think week long, um, uh, workshops. And so mine, um, again is, uh, it's like the third week of February and we usually like to keep it kind of small. It's usually five to eight students, which is, which is just about right. Um, in terms of everyone being able to, to get the most out of it, too big a group. And it gets to be too hard for everybody to pay attention. I find, uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I think, uh, people get a lot out of it. I really enjoy teaching it. It's, um, it's fun for me cause I'm a self-taught photographer. So I like to be able to, to hand off, uh, the knowledge that I've learned over the years and help, help some younger people, um, with their careers. So
1: check nice. Yeah. yeah, and lovely location as well. Uh,
2: yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, matter.
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't think I've ever actually stopped there, but I've driven through Palm Beach, and it's a it's an, a nice spot.
2: Yeah, it's really um, it's really a lovely lovely part of the world. So, yeah.
1: yeah, good stuff. Well, get, great. I, I hope best of luck with that. Thank you very much. And um, and I I'm going to be off in. I start my you know i've got a i've had a relatively relaxed uh always keep busy busy there's that busy word again <laughs> um relatively relaxed couple of months but uh from january 10th i start my winter tours and i i've still got one place left open on my hokkaido landscape photography adventure if anyone wants to do any uh, minimalist winter landscapes uh you can you can see the details of that at mbp.ac slash hlpa and uh I've also I, one thing that I'm I'm doing next year, which is actually a first, is uh, I'm I'm going to be going to Greenland before I do my my popular Iceland tour. So, if if anyone's interested in taking a look at Greenland, then uh, the, there's similarly you can find details of that at mbp.ac slash Greenland. But uh, yeah, the coming winter season is going to be great. I'm I'm looking forward to actually giving the the five d s r bodies that i've got i've 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 got two of them because i can't i couldn't imagine using my my old cameras as as a backup after that resolution um and and i mean you've been living in this world with your medium format and i know it's mm-hmm. a diff- it's a different format it's a different thing altogether but uh having fifty megapixels has been incredible and so I'm I'm probably going to be doing wildlife with my my high resolution slow frame rate five DsRs as well, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to blowing a few more myths out of the water with uh, <laughs> with that because uh, I've had pretty I've been doing some wildlife in Namibia earlier this year, and I'm finding that it just works. You know, it's kind of a step back to how I used to shoot ten years ago with the ten the ten D and the older 10G. cameras, but wow. yeah, you know, I mean, but like, there's like but now i mean then i think the 10d only had seven autofocus um points anyway and so you know but i used to make it work that was how that was how it was and so now we've still got a hell of a lot better autofocus we've got like 50 or so points and so i think that the 5d's are going to work um i'm looking forward to getting stuck into my my wildlife tours after the the landscape tour but uh, I think that's about it. Anything else to add before we wrap up, guys?
2: No, no. Thanks for having me on. It's always, always a pleasure to come. Yeah, likewise.
1: Not at all. Yeah, it's been wonderful speaking speaking with you both again today.
2: Yeah, yeah. great to meet you, Brian. Great to meet you as Absolutely.
1: well. Absolutely. So that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. Thanks to Squarespace, FreshBooks, and Linda for their support. So before we finish, I mean, you, you, do you guys, can you give us a... a one last like URL for the visitors to, to contact you from or to, to visit you and find out what's happening in your world?
2: Sure. Uh, sure. Mine's um, um, uh, jeffreytotero.com is my uh, my website and my social media is pretty much jeffreytotero on Twitter and uh, also on Instagram. Great. Uh, all of my
3: education for photographers is at sproutingphotographer.com and you can find out more about Sprout Studio at getsproutstudio.com.
1: Okay, and you can find me at martinbaileyphotography.com. Everything's linked there, and including all of my social stuff. And be sure to visit the TWIP website at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs>
2: Photo is a pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.